still have my nice yacht, or I could be looking back on my life and saying, um, I've done, hopefully, done some good. And and so that, is that a flash, you know, your life flashing before your eyes? Well, no, it's not when the bomb's falling beside you, and that's happened on a regular basis with our work. But it's it's been one of those few, because of my shallow nature, one of those few sensitive and insightful <laughs> parts of my life. Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. A really warm welcome to episode 55 of Purposely Podcast with Mike Seawright, founder of Relief Aid. Mike has a decade of experience working in conflict-affected countries, frustrated by the inability of many aid organisations to get staff and resources into conflict zones. He founded his own charity, Relief Aid, in late 2014. You'll love what Mike and his team are doing. And if you love what you're hearing from Purposely, if you're getting a lot out of it, you're learning, you're inspired, make sure you hit subscribe, make sure you leave a review. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Purposely Podcast. Great to be on the show, Mark. Thanks for having us. I thought we'd start with what is the mission and vision of Relief Aid, the charity you're founder and CEO of? Well, Mark, I'd been working in war zones uh, for a number of years, in fact, uh, just over a decade. And I had realized, um, seeing firsthand the effects of war, that not enough aid was getting into places like Syria, like Yemen, Sudan, Afghanistan, you know, the hotspots of the world. And I kind of felt, well, if not enough help is reaching these families, what could we do about that? And, and that was the inception of Relief Aid, um, to find families, to help families uh, that no one else could get, get help to. And that was in 2015. And uh, what is it now? Six years later, we're, we've supported over 211,000 people in uh, conflict zones. So that's, that's kind of it's our a- base idea. Massive numbers, aren't there? So 80 million refugees worldwide and, and 50 million people displaced by conflict or war? Yeah. Yeah, the numbers are absolutely staggering. And of course, you can look at those numbers and feel overwhelmed um, that nothing can be done. And I guess that's one of the challenges we have when communicating with New Zealand public or public around the world is demonstrating to them that while the number is uh, and the problem is huge, um, it starts with one family, and um, if we were in the same situation, we would certainly want to be a family that receives support. And and again, that's one of the drivers for our work is to make sure that one by one we do what we can to help that those people that are through no fault of their own forced from their homes by war and conflict. And give me a feel for Relief Aid as an organisation. So, like you said, uniquely based in New Zealand, but focused internationally. Two things jumped out at me, actually, independent and impartial uh, humanitarian action. So independent and impartial. Just tell me why that's so important, because it it did strike me as important. Well, in my earlier aid days, um, it was anecdotally uh, clear to all of us, myself included, that if you took government money, for example, uh, especially in a war zone, then the political parties, the warring parties as well could 
perceive you to be part of the conflict itself. I, a few years later, I ended up working for Foreign Affairs as an aid diplomat here in New Zealand and abroad. Uh, and this perception of uh, lack of impartiality and neutrality as it relates to taking government money became absolutely apparent to me because I was seeing aid decisions um, being made on the basis of political and military objectives overseas. So we took this lesson, I took this lesson when founding Relief Aid and said, well, hey, if, if we want to be, if we do not want to be, I should say, a tool of a country's foreign policy, we have to absolutely stay clear of government money. And that way we can access people that others cannot because we're independent, neutral, we don't take sides. Action is taken on the basis of need, not on the basis of political objectives. And so this is what sits at the very heart of our DNA to make sure that to help those that need help the most, that we do it in a way that keeps us apart from the conflict itself. you got a relatively small team, core team in New Zealand, but you scale up internationally and you've got people based overseas? Yeah, we're, we're pretty lucky, actually. We've got a huge volunteer base here in New Zealand. Um, we've got 19 individuals that uh, are professionals in their own right that provide their time and expertise to help us with our operations um, and our communications here in New Zealand. Now, they do this at no cost. Um, so they basically volunteer their time. In uh, Syria, which is our main source of operations at the moment, uh, we've got a core team of around 10 and that surges to 19 when we're in the midst of our um, major aid interventions. So we're pretty lucky. Our team in Syria are absolutely incredible. They are dedicated well beyond anything I've seen anywhere else. They've had opportunities to leave the country and yet they've stayed to serve their people. It's absolutely incredible. So in Syria, what's probably different to other conflict situations around the world in, in more modern times is that we have very middle-class um, citizens, very middle-class jobs, and the kind of extreme displacement is extreme, right? There's, you've got families who know a very different lifestyle. Um, is that has that been your experience when you're interacting with them, like the extremes of this? Yeah. The general public, um, I guess people in general, I should say, um, consider when they look at war zones, typically that they're completely different environments to where they are living themselves. And the war zone itself absolutely is very different from the context of New Zealand and compared to New Zealand. But... If you look at the life before the conflict, and using Syria as an example, I mean, as you say, Mark, this was a middle-income country. They had more doctors per capita than anywhere else in the world. Education was one of the absolute essentials of their culture and their country. And so their lives were not much different to our own. And, and while if you're in Africa and you're life is ripped apart by war and conflict, the effect uh, on you and your family is equally as devastating. But it's made even more apparent when you go from a country that looks like New Zealand, essentially, to a country that's now completely ripped apart by war, and that's what Syria is. 
and you still got the same government effectively in power. So the Assad government um, are still controlling the country. Yeah, the conflict in Syria has sort of ebbed and flowed in terms of military gains and political influence. But essentially, the Syrian government is still in power. Um, you could say that they have effectively won the conflict, although there's still a lot more fighting that is likely to occur to gain the remaining contested areas. So any hope that the people had when the revolution started for freedom and for freedom of speech is essentially being curtailed now. And what could, what sort of contact do you have with Syrians on a on a week by week basis? Are you you've got a team there you you talked about? So you're on the Zoom to them, you're on the phone to them. What's it like for them at the moment? Well, we're, we're talking to our team every day. They're um, they're in the midst of our aid interventions, our aid distributions, and deliveries each day. So we're operationally talking to them all the time. Um, I think what they're telling us about the general situation as opposed to our work itself is that the situation in the country is deteriorating significantly. Um, war in itself is devastating, but it's now been followed by COVID and an economic collapse. You combine all of these things together and the humanitarian situation is absolutely catastrophic. So life, I mean, life for families is pretty difficult, you know, if, um, I know when we make our own comparisons to life here in New Zealand, we're very lucky. Um, we've been particularly lucky as it relates to COVID, but even if you're in one of the hardest hit countries of the world, you know, Brazil, India, um, you add war on the top of that and life really gets hard. Mm, yeah. And have they had COVID in, in Syria? Oh, that's... Yeah, COVID's running through the camps. Um, I think one of the, this is sort of a reflection of the the such difficult living situations people are simply unable to worry about covid to a large extent they've got bigger problems you know they're looking each and every day is how do they first of all stop being bombed so they're now having to flee they flee to areas that are comparatively safer um, but even those are not free from attack uh, they're worried about how they're going to make ends meet living in a camp um, that's surrounded by mud and snow and winter and baking heat in the summer. And then they've got COVID and they're sitting there going, well, how do we socially distance when my tent is literally one or two feet away from my neighbor's tent um, where water is not readily available, uh, where sanitation is difficult, if not impossible, um, where medicine and hospitals or hospitals and have been bombed um, and so therefore medicine's not available. And they're now sitting here going, well, should we be worried about COVID or should we simply start by being worried about how to stay alive today? Mm -hmm. Different tacks. Going back to you as a young New Zealander, um, and could you have predicted that you would end up working in a humanitarian aid? <laughs> uh, I was uh, I was lucky enough, Mark, to be living a um, particularly good life uh, before I started humanitarian work. I did corporate um, work. Uh, I was doing uh, telecommunications and investment banking consultancy work. 
Um, I had a big yacht. Uh, I don't know, for those that live in Auckland, the sailing around um, Auckland is pretty spectacular. And frankly, I was, I was loving life. Yeah, but city I, of sails, right? But yeah, well, mm. exactly. I mean, there's you can you could frankly couldn't get further from a war zone in Auckland than um, than anywhere else in the world. But um, I did get an opportunity to uh, start my humanitarian career, as it turns out, in Sudan. My mate came back from um, from Africa, stayed with me. We got on the booze, had a few beers, and I convinced him to give an introduction to his boss in Kenya and. That's 16 years later, I'm now working, running uh, Relief Aid. And frankly, I never would have anticipated uh, where that path would have led me, but I have no regrets whatsoever in making the change from, let's say, corporate and money life uh, through to humanitarian, because uh, while it's difficult, you know, we lost two staff in... 2016 in Aleppo City, they were killed by snipers, dealing with some of this pain and trauma that is at times difficult. Um, but nonetheless, I, I personally feel I get more out of it than I put in. And this is because we work with some absolutely incredible people. And are there common traits amongst the, your colleagues and the people, your volunteers? Like, do, do you see things that people share? Because it is really unique work, right? And, it, and um, I'm not sure I would be brave enough. Well, I think we're very lucky to live in a country where people care. Um, and I like to describe our work kind of as a system. We're, for us to do what we need to do, we need financial support. I mean, it's pretty crude, but we need money. No money means no action. So we, we're lucky enough to have people in New Zealand who care and then we've got staff who care enough to turn that into action and we've got staff who care enough to put themselves at risk to help others and this combination of caring people in New Zealand and caring people in these conflict zones means that people get helped and I think fundamentally it comes down to do you care? Yes. And do you, do you have the ability to have an impact in, in whatever form that might be? And if the answer to, to that is yes, then you've got a great combination. And that's what we see. We see caring Kiwis helping us do our work to help families who need assistance around the world in these conflict zones. On a personal level, because you've worked in Iraq, Sudan and Syria, do you, like, do you have like a physiological response to, like you lose two colleagues, you know your life's in danger, certainly more in more danger than being in another country. Like what's, what's your kind of psychology and the physiological response to that on a, on a personal level? Do you, do you spend a lot of time at night worrying about the implications? Um, or, do, or do you actually put it out of your mind and when you're there, it's not, it's not, it's all about the job you have to do? You, you certainly can't operate if you're living in fear. So um, if I was to typify my own attitude um, and approach when working in these conflict zones, I, um, my job is to manage risk and to reduce it. So you're clearly looking at the situation in detail 
all the time, but at the same time, you can't worry about it. You know, like the difference between getting hit in an airstrike and just continuing on with your work is it is in many cases a random act. You know, in some cases, I directly targeting organizations such as Relief Aid, and this goes into the risk management um, process, process and strategy of your organization. But if you let that take over, you would literally do no work. And as a result, you have to compartmentalize it. And you don't quite realize you're doing that while you're there, but it's when you come home and you get the ability to decompress that you realize, um, let's say some of that innate pressure that you've been under and, and perhaps that you've applied to yourself to keep yourself and everyone else safe, keep the team safe, but it's only when you get out of it that you kind of realize the, the difference. And it, this is what makes it, this is one of the reasons I, I find working with our national staff so incredible is I'm lucky enough to come back to New Zealand from my breaks, you know, to, to live in New Zealand and then to travel to these conflict zones, but they don't get to leave. And yet they still dedicate themselves day in, day out to helping their people, despite all of these risks. It's, it's inspiring to yeah. work with such people. And that really interested in that decompression because do you find actually stepping back into the extreme opposite of a you know New Zealand day-to-day -day living just a little bit too hard? Like is do you react badly to that? Have you kind of got used to it? You've got strategies that because there's huge extremes in one flight, I imagine, or a couple of flights. Well, I, I like it as I guess the way to describe it. Um we are lucky to live in New Zealand. I, you know, if the world was a perfect place, everywhere would look like New Zealand. Yeah, this is, at least in my thinking, we've got, we've got a great life here. It's safe. Our systems run. Um, if you need help, it's not perfect. I, I wouldn't profess to say New Zealand's, in a social sense, is perfect by any extreme. But generally, it's running quite well. So when I come back to New Zealand from these places, I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't feel guilty about being back in New Zealand. Um, I enjoy being able to walk down the street and not have to worry about security problems, about being bombed, about, you know, being shot at or being detained, which are all very real problems that you deal with in these conflict zones. Um, so, yeah, you get back to New Zealand and you kind of think, wow, aren't we lucky? Aren't I lucky to be back here? Yeah. And has there, has there been a moment where your life flashed before your eyes? No, uh, no, not, I wouldn't say so. I, I, it is interesting though, um, I'm pretty, uh, what's the word? I, I, shallow might be the wrong word. Um, uh, uh, unsensitive, I'm not even sure that word exists actually, but I'm not, I'm not a particularly sensitive individual, perhaps a product of, of the work. But the only time I've had a kind of flash back, and it was actually a flash forward, is um, when I had the opportunity to start humanitarian work. And, and this, this question of here's a job in Sudan, go or don't go, in my mind, it's the first time as a comparatively young man back then, I'd ever looked forward. I'd always thought one day ahead, more or less. And here I was thinking, well, 
when I'm on my deathbed, um, what will I have achieved? And so it was this opportunity that made me think forward and say, okay, well, I could still have my nice yacht, or I could be looking back on my life and saying, um, I've done, hopefully, done some good. And, and so that, is that a flash, you know, your life flashing before your eyes? Well, no, it's not when the bomb's falling beside you, and that's happened on a regular basis with our work. But it's, it's been one of those few, because of my shallow nature, one of those few sensitive and insightful <laughs> parts of my life. And what, what age were you when you ended up in Sudan? Uh, I say relatively young, Mark. I was still, uh, it's a good question. Give me uh, a decade. You don't have to narrow it down. <laughs> I, think I, I think I was early to mid 30s. You're getting to the age now where I'm finding it difficult to differentiate one year from another, frankly. But anyway, I'm not that old, obviously. But um, but yeah, it was, I was in my mid 30s, early to mid 30s. Yeah. And in the sector you're in, um, I guess it's like, work hard, play hard, right? Is, is that real, it's, it's all encompassing, it takes on all your senses? Well, it, it, it's interesting, um, uh, going back to one of, the, one of your earlier examples around um, how, do you, how do you deal with some of the problems, let's say some of the trauma of, of work, and I'm not, th this is in no way a good coping strategy, but in, um, when I was in Sudan, one of my staff, um, went a bit, uh, dare I say it, crazy, and held uh, his girlfriend um, at knife point in front of the team, and then eventually jumped over uh, the table and stabbed her in the chest in front of everyone. This was uh, the living and working pressure in Sudan was quite extreme. And I, I must admit, um, it was one of those few times, I, I do like a beer, um, so I like, you know, finishing work in the day and then having a having a cold beer. But I, I would like to think that that's because um, I like it, not because I need it. But I, I do recall in, after this particular event, the stress of having to deal with a traumatised team, uh, a staff member, my medical team leader, she had been stabbed in the chest. The, the you know, everyone was in um, really hurting because she was a, super valued member of team and here we have her dare I say it, brutalized in front of everyone and um and I remember needing a beer you know that was a that was yeah. hand shaking at the end of the day having to do this he was put in prison temporarily before we shipped him back out of Sudan into Kenya and I remember for that period because no one would feed him I was having to go up I mean as I should as, uh, as one of my staff go up and feed him, um, but none of my team members, international team members would feed him. And I remember getting back each day after bringing him his food and hands shaking because, um, and needing a beer because, you know, just so overwhelmed with what had happened. It was a very, very difficult uh, experience, but um, in answer to your question, well, sometimes uh, it is all encompassing and we sometimes party to, to break that, you know, um, break that pressure. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it really bonds you to people, right? You have some really strong connections from your career in this, in this area. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, anyone uh, who performs well under these extreme 
circumstances, I mean, you, you have to respect, yeah? And, um, and I've been lucky enough to work with some absolutely stunning people who, who under the most extreme situations, be them national staff or international staff, have performed incredible, incredibly well in what would own, could only be described as an absolutely extreme environment. And that, um, what's the word, adversity really binds you together when you and your team perform well. And I'm still in contact with um, many of them, uh, even though I've worked with hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years around the world. And um, lucky enough, uh, we also use those connections to give us access to other conflict zones, which means our reach, uh, our work of 10 years ago is now bearing fruit um, with Relief Aid right now, which is an incredible. A conversation over a bear in London, which led you to a, or Relief Aid to a long partnership with Shelterbox. Is that right? Tell me a bit about yeah. that. Yeah, well, I, I founded um, Relief Aid in 2015 and uh, pardon the expression, I was pu pushing shit uphill trying to find the money to fund our operations. No one would talk to us. Um, I could sell myself as having experience, but I couldn't sell Relief Aid because we'd done nothing at that stage. And I eventually, um, after sending lots of emails to people and getting nowhere, I eventually made a decision that anyone that asked us or asked me to talk anywhere in the country, this is in New Zealand, I would go there. It's not about money, it was just about getting our name out there. So I flew down to Hawke's Bay where I'm from, spoke at a Rotary event and met this woman um, called Margaret Taylor and she introduced me to Shutterbox New Zealand. And uh, Shutterbox New Zealand said, look, hey, we're not operational, we, um, we deploy staff, but if you want to partner with us, you'll need to talk to our UK office and they introduced us and a couple of Skype meetings. And then eventually I was on my way to Yemen at the time. Um, I stopped off in London, had a few beers with them. And on a handshake that has formed uh, an incredible partnership with Shelterbox that's now in its sixth year, um, supporting almost uh, 200,000 people, the partnership, and the, um, providing material support that we would never have been able to um, generate through our own income generating activities. So it's an absolutely incredible partnership. Their expertise, their materials, our networks to get it into families. Uh, it, it's, you know, it was a game changer for us. Because mm. they provide really fundamental things, right? Around, uh, so the triage part when you're really in trauma and, and shelter being the obvious one. But um, yeah, their kits are incredible, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, th this is the reality of humanitarian action. It, um, it doesn't need to be complicated. In fact, if it is too complicated, it's too hard to do. Um, people need the absolute basics. You know, it really does come down to, you know, food, water, shelter. Um, and so if your home's been bombed uh, and you've been forced to flee with nothing but the shirts on your back, well, what do you need? You need blankets. You need tarpaulins to cover tents if you're lucky enough to find it. You need a cooking set to prepare meals. You need water containers to store water. Um, without these things, uh, literally you can't keep yourself or your family 
alive. So, yeah, it, it's basic, but it's the basics that are absolutely needed. And shelter box are incredible in their own right by having such a large disaster response, natural disaster response um, function. They go and respond in uh, natural disasters around the world, floods and cyclones, earthquakes and the like. Um, and we're lucky enough to partner with them on the acute war zone end, uh, delivering aid to families in conflict zones. We sort of head towards wrapping up. Is there one family's individual story which you could tell us about that kind of really illustrates the impact of relief aid? Yeah, it, it's not a, I have to say, it's not a very pleasant story, Mark, but nonetheless, it demonstrates, at least as I see, why we're, why we should be doing what we're doing. But in 2016, we were distributing um, red winter jackets in Aleppo City. It was really hot back then, the road into Aleppo City, hot, I mean, in a security sense. The road, only road into opposition-controlled Aleppo City at that point was Castillo Road and everything on the road was getting hit, trucks, cars, and people. And so we were using two-hour windows to put our trucks on that road um, to quickly get them into the city and get the aid off the trucks and out to families. And we supported um, a young girl called Miriam. We gave her a, a clothing set, actually, which included this red winter jacket and kind of lost contact with her over the following months and then our team were walking along the road one day and they came across Miriam uh, on the road and she'd been hit in an airstrike um, catastrophically as it turns out um, and yeah yeah it's it was seeing her um, as she was there was absolutely horrendous and I kind of thought well you know we've helped this girl and now she's dead did we make it did we have an impact this was you know like I was devastated that we could see our work she was still wearing the red jacket lying on the ground and this beautiful young girl and I kind of thought well did we help her and and I came to the realization well she may, not, she may not have survived the war, but many others have. And did we help her while she was alive? Well, yes, we kept her warm and we kept her alive in a city where minus five degrees and catastrophic bombing on a daily basis without warm winter clothing, she would have passed even earlier. So mm. I kind of, it's, it's a horrendous story. Um, but at least in my mind, I kind of use her as my motivation for carrying on doing what we do to yeah. get in, to get aid out to kids like Miriam. Rely on and, and who do you get your funding from? Well, we frankly, might we rely on the generosity of people to, to support our work. Um, as we've touched on, we won't take government money. So this requires us to get support from private individuals and the general public. So this is fundamentally what we, um, what we do to fund our action. And without that, we're unable to deliver aid to those that need it. Um, 
so yeah, it comes down to uh, telling our story and more importantly, telling the story of families that are much like ours and then hopefully getting support from New Zealand public and, and public and other places around the world to, to fund our action. Mm. And Relief Aid, where will it be in five years, 10 years? What's your vision for the organisation? Yeah, this is this is a great question, Mark. It's the one I'm uh, I'm dealing with right now. I'm um, putting a lot of thought into what we would look like in a few years. And the, the simple answer is um, more war zones, delivering more aid to more people in need. This is our our mantra. So, what would that mean in practice right now? Well, if we were if we had the funds to expand our operations, we would be in northern Ethiopia with the Tigray conflict we'd be back in Yemen um, helping a population that's been devastated by years of war there um, we would be getting aid into these places um, where other aid agencies are unable and so more aid to more people in more countries this is this is a this is where we want to be we want those numbers of people we want help to those people to just continuing to increase that's a fantastic aspiration. Um, thank you for joining me on Purposely. I really enjoyed our conversation and all the best for the future. Thanks a lot, Mark. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.